we love it, right? We love the clear, clean statement of intention that the goal is to get to 100% of people in accountable care relationships. I think the the question of like, what is the next step that that I think is the best of the 10 or so that they list here? It is absolutely the bullet that says, work with the Medicare and Medicaid programs, including the Medicare Shared Savings Program to better incentivize the transition. Welcome to the ACO Show. Today, Josh is joined by Travis Broom, Senior Vice President for Policy and Economics, Sean Cavanaugh, Chief Policy and Commercial Officer, and Farzad Mustashari, Allidade Co-Founder and CEO. They delve into the five strategic objectives released in CMMI's recent white paper on their vision for the next 10 years. Welcome to the ACO Show. I'm Josh Israel, an Allidade Medical Director. Joined by Farzad Mostashari, who's the CEO of Allidade, Sean Cavanaugh, who's the Chief Policy and Commercial Officer at Allidade, and Travis Broom, Allidade's Senior Vice President of Policy and Economics. Delighted to welcome back all three of you to the show. CMS, or the Center for Medicare, has put out a paper on driving health system transformation, a strategy for the next decade. The five main points of their vision for what's to come over the next 10 years are driving accountable care, advancing health equity, supporting care innovations, improving access by addressing affordability and partnering to achieve systemic transformation. Thought we'd go around, get your thoughts on each of these. Uh, So we'll start with driving accountable care. We should warn the audience, we're gonna get in the policy weeds here. And we're gonna start by saying stuff like, well, actually technically it's not the Center for Medicare, that is just one center within the larger Center for Medicare, Medicaid services, that kind of stuff. So be prepared, Josh. All right, that's what I get for having people on the show who know more about this than I do. The main aims of driving accountable care for Medicare are that all Medicare AMB beneficiaries or fee-for-service beneficiaries will be in a care relationship with accountability for quality and cost by 2030, and that the vast majority of Medicaid beneficiaries will be in a care relationship with accountability by 2030. And just quick background, about two-thirds of patients in the Medicare system currently are in an ACO or Medicare Advantage. Well, why don't we go around and get each of your thoughts on what's good about that? What could be better? Want to start with you, Farzad? Yeah, look, it. we love it, right? We love the clear, clean statement of intention that the goal is to get to 100% of people in accountable care relationships. You know, I think the meat of this is in each of those sections, they have a next steps. And so I think the, the question of like, what is the next step that, that I think is the best of the 10 or so that they list here, it is absolutely the bullet that says, work with the Medicare and Medicaid programs, including the Medicare Shared Savings Program to better incentivize the transition. That I think is absolutely the right way to do it. Instead of spinning up 10 new models that is gonna go after some small portion or, or like some new test or whatever, it's like, build on what is already working. It is by far, the Medicare Shared Savings Program is by far the largest value-based program in the country. It is by far the most successful value-based program in the country. And there are lots of ways that you could further incentivize uh, providers to enter into the Medicare Shared Savings Program. And right now, I don't know, Travis, where we are, probably about a 35% or so of primary care physicians are in an ACO. That number should get to 100%. I think it's also worth noting, you know, this is probably the third administration in a row since the Affordable Care Act who could have written this same section, right? There's a surprising degree of unanimity that this is the way to go. As Farzad said, there's now 
this enormous chassis, the Medicare Shared Savings Program, that's now up and running and successful to build on. Probably what's new here is more explicit call out of Medicaid and some discussion of, is being in Medicare Advantage enough? Is that really an accountable care relationship or do we need to dig down and find out how are those people really getting care? Yeah, I think, you know, when you read the reports, it's basically there's about 17 and a half million people left that if they want to reach that goal in traditional Medicare that they got to pull in, which means they have to more than double the size of the largest program that's ever been done and the only statutory program that's been done, not an innovation. So one of the things we've talked about before is this idea of kind of a a virtual ACO and, you know, macro doesn't come up. I think maybe at all. So you can talk about something kind of missing, right? The big law around macro in value and using that potentially to leverage those big numbers with a virtual ACO. One of the things we've learned over the last 10 years is absolutely like one of the lessons learned is that physician practices can be in accountable care organizations without threatening their independence. As a matter of fact, their independence is a plus. Right. So you come, they come together right now with a common mission and a a fair amount of governance in MSSP and data. And we talked a little bit more about data on four, but there's an opportunity you want to test something that could really get big, putting everybody in virtual ACOs without the governance. You know, you're not going to force people into governance and certainly not with downside risk necessarily, but use the macro model to basically put everyone in an ACO. Now that's a, that's the type of scalable test that would actually get you to 17 and a half million people. So so this is a genius idea from Travis. Let me try to let me try to restate it. You could say that everybody in Maryland, every practice in Maryland is essentially in an ACO. Either you're already in an ACO or we're going to put you with a bunch of other practices that are similar to you in some ways and we're going to call you an institution. And you can enter into the Medicare Shared Savings Program, basic A, basically, right? Where it's one-sided risk. And we're going to send you reports, but you know, if you actually get savings, you're going to get paid. There's no downside to you, right? So that's why we think it could actually be a mandatory model because it's, it's really, there's no downside, at least in the initial years. And the reason why we think that that could be really cool is basically everybody's then in an arrangement. If they don't like the people they're with, they can actually create an actual ACO for themselves. What do you think, Sean? If you were the director of the Center for Medicare as you were and, and staff came to you with this idea, would you, would you do it? Yeah, and you know what would drive me there is, you know, they've stated a goal of 2030, everybody's going to be in an accountable relationship, which raises the first question is like, what does that mean for next year? How many need to be in an accountable relationship next year? And then each year, if I'm really going to get to everybody in the next eight years, And when you start to set those goals, you start to realize we need more carrots and sticks. We need to push people along. And I think that's a very gentle stick and a nice big carrot that gets providers to step up on accountability. So yeah, very much I would pursue something like this. Anything else any of you would like to add about that one? Well, I really like this one, beneficiary engagement incentives. And one of the questions that has come up a lot is, well, the docs get benefits, the government gets a benefit. What's in it for the beneficiary? Well, other than, you know, reduced hospitalization rates and improved quality. But I think there's something really interesting here that they could test a feature within MSSP, right? Like you keep the Medicare Shared Savings Program chassis and you test features on top of that, including things like 
You know, if you go to an ACO doctor, you don't pay a copay. Like that would be cool, right? To actually have beneficiaries get some of the benefit from uh, ACOs and seeing if that actually helps the ACO save more money because beneficiaries would then preferentially have a reason to go to their ACO primary care doctor or even a specialist who's affiliated with the ACO. I like that one. For the CMMI or CMS have the authority to waive copays like that? Sean? Yes, they can waive any provision of Title 18 and they've got $10 billion in the bank. They can do a lot of stuff. So they could and should absolutely do things like that. Strategic objective number two, advancing health equity. The aim as defined by CMS is to embed health equity in every aspect of CMS and increase the focus on underserved populations. Hard to argue what's not good about that, but would love to get your all your thoughts on that one. Want to go first, Sean? Sure. You know, on the previous one, I said it was you know, something any of the previous administrations could have written almost verbatim. A tip of my hat to this administration, because this has never been called out in the way it has been here. And they've also followed through this year with really concrete examples of things they want to do embedded in, you know, various payment rules and models. So just big picture, it took this administration to put this on the map the way it is. And I do think they're sincere. And I do think we all need to think long and hard about this because it's going to be a a driving force in everything Medicare and Medicaid do in the coming years. Yeah, I, I agree. And we at Allidade for a long time felt like if we're doing the right things for population health, then, you know, almost as a side effect, it will help address disparities. And in the aftermath of George Floyd, we said, no, that's not true. Let's, let's actually directly address disparities. And I'm, you know, I'm ashamed that it took us six years and, and the death of George Floyd and nationwide protests to get there. But it is very different to say we are going to have a goal very specifically targeted. In our case, we chose, as you know, Josh, disparities in blood pressure in, in severely uncontrolled blood pressure control, which was 8% among Black patients, beneficiaries, and, and like 4% among white in the Medicare population that we serve and to directly target that. And the good news is that we've made substantial progress in, in that because we focused on it. And I think that that is something that Medicare should test more broadly, creating incentives, creating visibility and transparency around those disparities by, for example, race, ethnicity. Travis, anything you'd add there? I think the biggest thing is this develop approaches, model design process to improve participation of people who serve these com communities. And I think that's really important, but I also think it's really important to look at what we already incentivize. And you know, there's just a bias in these papers to do new things. Right now, it was called out in the previous one, advanced primary care models got called out for being whiter and, and less likely to serve duly eligible patients. Well, one of the first things you do if you find yourself in a hole is you got to stop digging. So there's a issue in the Medicare Shared Savings Program, again, where, where all the lives are coming from on our way to that 2030 goal. We call it the risk cap issue. We'll spare the listener there the glory details. But the bottom line is, if I lower costs for 5% with someone with Medicaid and I lower costs 5% someone without Medicaid, right now under the current rules, I'm likely to get capture more of that 5%. I'm likely to get paid more for reducing costs for the person without 
Medicaid, and I will get paid less for reducing costs for the person with Medicaid, right? The financial incentive today is opposite. The arrow of the direction is pointing in the wrong way. And I think that's one of the things we need to be really careful of as we think about this particular advanced equity. We, we all want to do new things. We all want the shiny toy, but it's at least as important, if not possibly more important to really look at our current situations and really evaluate which way is the arrow pointing right now? Like if you put this sucker on a spreadsheet, does the bottom line come out to say, go to areas with underserved communities or go to areas with overserved communities. There's another issue in MSSP called the rural glitch that basically says, whatever you do, don't go to an underserved community. Don't go to a health professional shortage area because CMS will keep more of the savings than yeah. someone who goes to an area where there's lots of clinicians running around. Yeah, look, at, I, we, we are very supportive of what the administration's doing, I do think that they made a mistake in not addressing these two issues, the risk cap and the rural glitch, and the opportunity they had in the finalizing the physician fee schedule this year. And I'm confident they're going to do it next year. It's just like they have to fix it. As Sean said, like, how many years do you have? You know, mm -hmm. what's the plan for next year? And, and by making worse incentives for rural providers and those who serve minority populations, they've made a mistake. Yeah, we just add about the health equity piece. Like a lot of us, I think I had my eyes open to systemic racism in the past year or two. And, you know, we were all aware of things that were just overt and malign, like redlining in real estate, but not so much the subtleties of the, the weedy details of how providers may be disadvantaged for working with Medicaid populations, the way these things are just in every crack and crevice, including in the healthcare system. Any final thoughts from, from any of you? One of the, the real challenges in this area is we do not have very good data on social disadvantage, so SES, or even race ethnicity. The data, for example, that I quoted was from the Social Security Administration, their recording of, of race ethnicity for the Medicare beneficiaries, which we then get passed from, from CMS. And there's been lots of literature on how those are not very accurate, particularly around ethnicity and Hispanic ethnicity. And so there's always a question do we start with improving the data collection methods to capture more granular and more accurate information, or do we go with what we have already? And I strongly believe that there is absolutely value with going with what we have today. And the, the saying of like, you improve data quality by sharing and using it. You clean up for company. And if CMS began to report every institution stratifying their quality results by the race, ethnicity that we have, white, non-white, or white, black, other, then people would begin to collect better and more accurate information if they feel, feel like they're, those are not accurate. But I can tell you from looking at the data that we looked at, there is signal in that you know white, black split. The, the black population had twice the rate of uncontrolled hypertension than, than the white population. So I think that we can't make perfect the enemy of the good. And the way we get to perfect or better is, is by starting. Let's just start. Thanks, Farzad. Strategic objective number three, and Travis, I'll have you start on this one. It is supporting care innovations. The aim, according to Medicare, is a, a boring, jargony mouthful, talking about person-centered care and peer-to-peer -peer learning collaboratives. So I'll just turn it over to you and, and get your thoughts on what Medicare plans to do about supporting care innovations. 
Yeah, when we when you skip to the next steps, it's like more data and more waivers of current rule that allow for experimentation, right? Those are the things that always get us more excited about. CMMI's track record on more data isn't great, particularly to those not in the model. So hopefully they can open up more data and just really creating the sense of like across the government of the default is to release it. That was something that made a lot of progress and broke a lot of barriers about eight years ago or so, where they basically flipped the script and said, the data goes out unless you can tell me why it's not going to go out, as opposed to why, why should we put the data out? So that's really important coming through that opportunity. And, and then like, once I have it, what do I do with it? And that's where a lot of the payment waivers for community-based care and home patients. So a lot of this really just comes down to of you've given somebody the incentive, the aligned financial incentive around reducing total cost of care. Give them all the information you have. Let them test some new methodologies and then, and then let a thousand roses bloom I and mean, kind of get out of the way. This is actually an area that us at Allidate have been talking to both Congress and CMS about for a while. And it relates, you know, as most of our physician listeners know, everything about Medicare was set up to prevent overutilization, whether it's the coverage rules of when a service can be provided, the payment rules of how you can bill for it and when, the auditing. It's all about, are you responding to the incentives of fee-for-service too much, meaning overutilizing this service? So that whole infrastructure of program integrity and you know, constraint, when a provider joins an ACO that's truly accountable, total cost of care, that should, stuff should just fall away. And you know, there've been some nice in, incremental movement in this area around certain waivers and stuff. But I hope this signals like a more fundamental rethinking, for, especially for the ACOs that are really embracing total cost of care, to really free them to, to, to innovate just as the goal is stated. So the one, I, the bullet I want to pick up on is the one that says accelerate sharing of best practices and tools across participants. You know, there, I don't know, how are 650 or whatever ACOs are out there. We all want to learn what works. And the government's incentive is for us to learn what works. This is not a competition. It's a competition against fee-for-service. And I don't think, despite, I don't know, how many healthcare learning and action networks have we all been a part of? I don't know, half a dozen over the years. I ran one at Brookings myself. We have not actually gotten data-driven learning, by which I mean, go look in the data and find out which ACOs are the top you know, 1% for reducing Part B drug spend, for reducing end-of-life costs, for reducing hospital outpatient costs, for improving whatever, right? Find the data. Go talk to those people. Don't tell them what they're good at. Don't tell them, we're talking to you because you're good at this. You know, how'd you do it? Say, what do you do? What does your ACO do? What are your activities that you do? And then see if any of them actually have a relationship with the, with the thing that you found. This is this data-driven healthcare a learning network is not something that we've had before, and I strongly feel it's a huge, huge, huge opportunity to increase the savings rate in all, across all of these ACOs. Strategic objective number four. This one's pretty understandable, pretty unarguable, I would hope. I improve access by increasing affordability with the aim of pursuing strategies to address healthcare prices, affordability, and reduce unnecessary or duplicative care. Who would like to start? So let me start. I love this one. I love this idea that 
affordability, right, is, is like the difference between affordability and, and cost of care is like, what does the beneficiary see? What is the, what is the, the, the patient at the end of the day see? And we've done a lot to create savings and to create incentives, to align incentives between the payer and Medicare and purchaser and, and the doctor. But what about the patient? We haven't done anything really to align those incentives for the patient. And let me tell you, one of the challenges that our practices have if they're trying to tell a patient, hey, go to this specialist, not that specialist, or, or get your MRI over here, not over there, because it's cheaper for the government. But like, is it cheaper for the patient? No, it's not cheaper for the patient. So aligning the beneficiary's incentives with what is best for the system and best for the doctor it can be huge. And I particularly love the idea of the government will pay your copay if you go to a ACO primary care physician or one of the supplier specialists or downstream providers who are affiliated with the ACO. So I would love to see that as a test done by CMMI on top of the chassis afforded by the Medicare Shared Savings Program. Sean, what about you? What do you like about this one? What do you think could be better about it? Yeah, I, I fully aligned with Farzad on that, that you know, we, we've worked hard to get the incentives right for providers and we just haven't done enough you know, beneficiaries have a role to play in this. And so the signals need to pass through to them as well. I don't want to lose sight of the fact, I mean, affordability is what are we doing for the beneficiaries? I don't want to lose sight of, we are doing a lot for beneficiaries. It's just, they can't see it. Like they don't know about when they didn't need the hospitalization, even though we've saved them a lot of money and a lot of grief and a lot of pain and heartache. So it's just that I like, I understand why they're not giving us credit for it because they're not aware of it. But we as policymakers or you know, participants in the program should not lose sight of that. That has a financial, but also emotional and physical value to the patient. We've been down this road a little bit before. Farzad's idea of just waiving co-pays for primary care when you have total cost of care accountability, like that's like absolutely what we need. That's kind of the big sweeping thing, but we also need like true value-based insurance design too. I think we need to be able to maybe even dip into part D of like, you know, for people who really need a drug covering the co-pays of the drug, but at the same time, you know, value-based programs aren't supposed to be subsidies to Medigap programs, right? So like being able to maybe only cover it when it's actually exposed to the beneficiary as opposed to everyone, whether they have Medigap or not, for example, you know, that kind of targeting kind of gets people's hairs on their arms kind of come up a little bit, but it's really a big difference maker when it comes into both getting these innovations targeted at exactly who needs them and exactly who benefits from them and keeping them focused like that is how they become savers for the government overall, right? You give a really, really wide benefit. It might be tough to make all that money back. You allow people to do a tailored benefit and it's much easier for that to generate overall saving. Well, they, they talk about how do you align episodes or specialty care with, with primary care-led accountable care. And a, a couple of data points to pick up on there. One is there was a Barnett paper that found that when you have coexistence of bundles and ACO arrangements, and there was so much concern about overlap and are we paying twice, and, and you find actually that it works better. Like when you, when you actually have two groups working on the same patient, one on the episode and one on the ACO, you increase the savings, which kind of makes sense. The second observation was recently there was an evaluation in JAMA of the oncology care model, and they found no savings, no net savings. And I think to me, what those two 
data points, the line that they're creating is trying to go only to specialists hasn't worked very well. And what we need to be doing is giving risk-taking primary care groups that are, have already risk for total cost of care, give us more tools to discipline and to control downstream supplier costs with specialists. That I think is the way I would, I would address this instead of trying to, again, create like 12 new specialist models. What do you think, Sean? How do we do that? I think, you know, CMMI could be, you know, as they test models, rather than, as you said, testing as a freestanding thing just for specialists, say it's got to be done in the context of the Medicare Shared Savings Program. So like, as you said, you're putting the primary care risk-bearing organization in the driver's seat and then using that model to see if they can generate additional savings. All right. And finally, strategic objective number five is partnering to achieve systemic transformation. And we've certainly seen this at Allidaid, where the more patients a physician or a provider has in a value-based arrangement, the more value-based work gets done. CMS defines their aim uh, as aligning priorities and policies across CMS and engaging payers, purchasers, states, and beneficiaries to improve quality, achieve equitable outcomes, and reduce healthcare costs. Travis, how about we start with you on this one? What do you think? What's good about it? What could be better? The best thing is that they haven't given up. Right. This has been so hard over the last 10 years to do kind of multi-payer aspects. Um, so I'm just really excited that they they haven't given up. It's a little sad that they narrowed right away to Medicaid and state. And I think one of the things we use this uh, decision making process at Allidate called RAPID and the, and the I stands for input. And I think if they design kind of almost brought the commercial payers in as an I, like even if you're not going to join up, like trying to get their inputs from the Blue Cross Blue Shields, the Aetnas of the world, et cetera, on what would it take or, or what direction, at least back to my directionality, right? Like we want the arrow pointed at, even if they don't sign up right away, this is a model that also might be adopted in the commercial space as well. There are some things where total cost of care accountability, that kind of works if single payer. There are other things like say primary care capitation, they're really just so much more powerful as a multi-payer platform. So I'm excited that they're still trying. And I think probably the biggest thing I would say is to, to pull those payers in, even as it kind of like inputs into the design process, even if the end result doesn't, you know, allow them to sign on as official partners. Sean, what do you think? You've been in government and out of government as this issue has been tackled? Yeah, Travis mentioned you know, there's a trade-off here, which is you know, the reason they haven't done it as much is you can move a lot faster if you move alone, right? CMMI can just do a model. And if you want to move with other payers, you got to sit down and work with them. You know, in our space, in, you know, total cost of care accountability, you know, in an ACO type model, there's certainly the things that Medicare gets right, you know, the benchmarking, though it needs improvement, reeling back on the number of quality measures, that sort of thing. And it would be great to see them working with commercial payers, Blue Cross plans across the country to try to get some harmonization and some agreement on methodology. It doesn't have to be to the letter. Like we can, providers can adjust to some variation, but to get general themes of balancing, you know, rewarding efficiency and rewarding improvement and not doing 25 quality measures, that sort of thing. So it is hard work, but it's absolutely worth it, as Travis said. Yeah, I agree. This is 
such an important issue to get some harmonization. And when the government convenes, they can make it easier for uh, competitors who would normally, you know, if they were discussing payment models, it would, they would fall afoul of, of antitrust considerations, loyally concerns. It, it, this, it can provide an, an alternative there. So I think that would, that would be great. The other thing not to forget about is that the government actually does have levers when it comes to, say, marketplace. And we've seen Covered California have, you know, put in some, I think, beginning language, not very aggressive, but something in there around the, the need for marketplace participants to encourage alternative payment models. And I think they could go farther on that. And I think we've seen the beginnings of, say, in North Carolina Medicaid, Mandy Cohen putting in requirements for Medicaid managed care around embracing alternative payment models. So I do think there's there's convening that could be done, but I also think that there's more direct levers that that they have, including in Medicare Advantage, which, as Sean pointed out, you know, one way to think about it is like, oh, if anyone's an MA, then they're already in a, in a capitated payment arrangement. The other way is to say, no, a lot of those patients are actually getting the, the providers who care for them are getting paid fee for service by the MA plan. And that those are not alternative advanced payment models. So as we wrap up this show, Sean, what, what's your sense of this all big picture? Well, first of all, I think it's really heartening for those of us who've been working in this field that, you know, yet again, another administration is saying this is the right way to do it, that we need to move away from fee-for-service. We need to support providers. Obviously, a lot of how much this means will be in the follow-through and what they, the actions they actually take. That's the first thing. I Don't lose sight of the fact that, you know, we're really, the accountable care movement is unstopping. And then got to give them, as, I, as we discussed earlier, a lot of credit on the health equity. Again, have to see what follows through, but we expect real action and it's overdue and validate. We're gonna do our part as far as I'd said, if not more than our part. So would love to have seen more accountability built into this. Like if you really wanna get everybody in an accountable relationship in eight years, how many do you need in an accountable relationship next year? And hold us and CMS jointly accountable. But again, really pleased that they're doubling down on this. And it is, as far as I'd said, you know, CMI and CMS have tested a lot of things. And the thing that keeps coming through is MSSB, particularly physician-based, works. And so let's build on that. Travis Broom, Sean Cavanaugh, and Farzad Mostashari, glad to have you on the ACO Show. This episode of the ACO Show was produced by Leanne Priede. Our theme music is by Donna Korn. You can find previous episodes of the ACO Show on our website, alliday.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.